We are back, and at this point in time, we are attempting something that Radio Parallax has never tried before, which is recording in a moving vehicle. We are still en route back from the beautiful state of Oregon, back to California. But uh, we're probably not going to get back in time to go into the studio and sit down with a microphone. So, our thinking is, let's go ahead and record this in the car. We apologize in advance for any diminishment of the audio quality, but this is probably the way we need to go. So, forward we go. I'd like to start off this segment by noting that someone we're very fond of, Mr. Russ Baker, is currently out in the local region. Russ Baker is the founder of whowhatwhy.com, a website we quote from frequently on this show, and one which we cannot recommend to you highly enough. Russ specializes in deep politics, and so do we up to a point. But he's out there doing a lot of the first-hand digging and hiring people who likewise are doing that, and then reporting on the findings at whowhatwhy.com. Russ is also the best-selling author of the book Family of Secrets, which is frankly pretty tough on the Bush clan, but uh, we think probably deservedly so, as as far as we know, the things that Russ is reporting on are accurate. We do not believe we will have time to get to Mr. Baker for the show you're listening to, but we'll do our best to bring him on next week's program at greater length to do him justice. It is, in fact, the hope of this program that in the future we will be able to collaborate more directly with Mr. Russ Baker and vice versa, and uh, we shall see if that uh, comes into being. We hope so. It's no secret that on this program we're big fans of the kind of journalists that we refer to as investigative journalists. We've often made the point that it's sad that you actually have to have a special name for the kind of person that goes out and digs up stories instead of reporting on what he or she is handed. One such journalist, we are sad to report, passed away recently, and we probably should comment a bit about the passing of Phil Tracy. Article in the San Francisco Chronicle by David R. Baker discusses Mr. Tracy under the headline, Journalist Exposé Led Jim Jones to Flee. To quote from the piece, Phil Tracy, a journalist whose 1977 expose of the People's Temple led Jim Jones and his followers to flee San Francisco for South America, died Thursday. He was 74. A former reporter for the Village Voice, Mr. Tracy teamed with the Chronicle's Marshall Kilduff to interview former Temple members who had grown disillusioned with and frightened of Jones, at the time a powerful figure in San Francisco politics. Jones, who had tried to stop their story's publication in New West magazine, received a telephone call the night before it ran, reading him its contents. Jones promptly fled the city for Guyana along with hundreds of his followers. Most of them would die a little more than a year later on November 18, 1978, when Jones's cult committed mass suicide at his command. The piece quotes former Chronicle reporter Mike Weiss, who was a longtime friend of Mr. Tracy, as saying, Phil felt that the highest calling of a journalist was to expose this guy who everybody thought was a good guy. Weiss said the Jonestown Massacre, as the event came to be known, scarred Mr. Tracy. He said, how can I do an investigation again if this is the, if this is the consequence? All those dead children. Weiss said, everyone said to him, you're crazy, man. It's not your fault. But he felt it was. 
The obituary goes back and describes Phil Tracy's early years and then goes on to note that after a brief, miserable stint doing social work, Mr. Tracy landed a job at the Albany court as the Albany correspondent for the Village Voice. Former Chronicle columnist John Carroll said he knew a lot about city politics, a lot about state politics, and he was the quintessential New Yorker. He was very funny in the sarcastic way you'd think a New York reporter should be. Carroll took a job at New West Magazine and recruited Mr. Tracy to join him. The native New Yorker agreed, telling Carroll he was ready for a change. At that time, Jim Jones was a rising figure in San Francisco who had for years made a point of cultivating connections with the city's political elite, including Mayor George Moscone. And yet few people knew much about the man beyond his ability to mobilize People's Temple members to attend political rallies and canvasses door-to-door for his political allies. You're listening to KZFR 90.1 FM, Chico. Marshall Kilduff, then a reporter at the Chronicle, was interested in finding out more. But Jim Jones's connections extended into the newsroom as well. Said Kilduff, the city editor at that time really liked Jim Jones. He'd been to the church and thought Jones was a good guy, and I couldn't get him to do a story in the Chronicle. So Kilduff approached New West and ended up teamed with Mr. Tracy. They began talking to people who had left the temple, The story they finally published on August 1, 1977, revealed the physical and emotional abuse of Temple members with details provided by former members willing to be named and photographed. The article also detailed how, for months, New West Magazine had received a barrage of phone calls and letters from the Temple supporters, including California's lieutenant governor at the time, urging the magazine to drop its investigation. Jones fled to an agricultural camp the Temple had already established in Guyana. Phil Tracy worked on follow-up stories, talking with more disaffected Temple members who had stayed in the U.S., but he decided against going to Guyana himself. Said Penny Post, with whom he had fallen in love while living in New York and married in January of 1978, he came home and said, I can't do any more without going to South America, and if I go, they'll kill me. Noted the article, but others did. California Representative Leo Ryan flew to Jonestown on November 14th with a delegation that included journalists from the Chronicle and the San Francisco Examiner, also the NBC and the Washington Post. Ryan and four others were killed, trying to leave with defectors from the camp. Back at the camp itself, more than 900 people died from ingesting cyanide. Said Post, I heard it on the radio and went screaming into the back room and said they've done it, they've killed a congressman. Post said she isn't certain that Mr. Tracy took the massacre personally, but he did become increasingly depressed. Tracy stayed in journalism for a time, becoming the managing editor of the L.A. Weekly. He later took a job with the San Francisco Study Center, which provides research and editorial services to Bay Area nonprofits. Mr. Tracy apparently retired about 11 years ago and spent his most recent years in Palo Alto. Said Post, he was a great storyteller, a great raconteur. He had a sense of irony and the absurd like no one I've ever known. We certainly want to salute the passing of Phil Tracy. Someone else we think we should uh, note the passing of from San Francisco was former journalist Rose Pack. Ms. Pack is better known for being a political activist. Noted, the Chronicle, Ms. Pack never held an elective office or sat on a city commission, but she helped change the political face of San Francisco, largely by recognizing it was changing. As the city's Asian-American population exploded, Pack worked to involve her community more directly in city politics. 
We would note that uh, former Radio Parallax guest and San Francisco mayor, Willie Brown, noted that Rose Pack was terribly influential in him becoming a politician and later the mayor of San Francisco. Both he and our pal David Talbot noted that she was really a very entertaining person to sit down and chat with. She was quite profane, she was very blunt in her speech, and called them as she saw them. Rose Pack did have an interesting history. She was born in 1948. Her mother and sisters fled communist China to British Hong Kong in the early 1950s. She was educated at a Catholic boarding school there and in Portuguese Macau before coming to California on a scholarship to study communications at the San Francisco College for Women. After receiving her master's degree in journalism from Columbia University in New York, Rose Pack returned to San Francisco in 1974 to work as a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle and immerse herself in the city's Asian community. As the newspaper's only Cantonese-speaking reporter, Ms. Pack found herself on the never-too-well-defined Chinatown beat, covering everything from the Chinese New Year parade to local business stories to tales of crime and gang warfare. Noted her obituary, she built a network of political and social connections over the decades and was never shy about calling on them. Said former Mayor Art Agnos, she was a fierce opponent in empowering people in the various commissions that affect public policy, and the way she did it was classical political strategy. She was the classic gatekeeper, and she did it for the good of her community. In a piece by Lizzie Johnson, the Chronicle has noted that Rose Pack always shrugged off claims that she was a city hall power broker, a woman who could give thumbs up and thumbs down on city projects or politicians. She said, power is an illusion. If people think you have it, you have it. Anyway, we find Rose Pack to be a very interesting example of somebody who wields a lot of power and yet does not actually hold elective office. As the Chronicle noted, she never held an elective office or sat in a city commission, but nevertheless helped change the political face of the city. We might at this point make some comparisons between Rose Pack and someone who wields a similar sort of influence in our state capital, Angelo Sakopoulos. As reported, I would say probably ad nauseum on this program, recent months to years, uh, we find Mr. Sakopoulos and his stooge, Phil Angelides, to be a powerful, if sometimes malevolent force in Sacramento politics. And at this point, I think we should update some of the stories that we have um, talked about on local level, stories that yours truly has been involved with personally. I would say that I thought a couple years back that the ill-advised project to build 300 homes on a piece of land with no access to the freeway might well get shot down by the neighborhood uh, forces of East Sacramento, but boy, did I get an education in real politics. It was clear very early on that although this project had a lot of negatives, the skids had been greased and it was going to go forward. Now, there's a process here in how such things need to be done. That's a phrase that City Councilman Steve Hansen kept saying during various public meetings, that there's, there's a process here. We're going through the process. And as part of the process, you have to phony up information sometimes that um, makes the whole thing look better than it in fact is. As reported previously on this show, to our chagrin, um, Hansen and others kept trotting out people from the city of Sacramento who would dutifully report that, yes, we've done this and that according to the environmental impact report, we've done a traffic study, and we, we've seen that there will be really a minimal impact on East Sacramento. 
we expressed open and profound skepticism about this on this program last year, noting that uh, according to their estimates, 60% of the traffic of this new development would be routed over the top of I-80 and be dumped off on B Street. We voiced the opinion that that didn't seem very likely, that 60% of the traffic was going to go in that direction, simply because once they got stopped behind the trains that crossed B Street, they would instead go to the other opening to this project, which is over off of C. It turns out we were a bit prophetic in this, more than we could have possibly imagined. They opened up a hole in the railroad berm and are routing traffic in and out of this future development, which they've now done some showing of homes for. And uh, at this point, 100% of the traffic goes through the C Street entrance, meaning that the estimates for traffic in my neighborhood are clearly off by a factor of at least two and a half, since it's not 40% of the traffic being routed onto C Street, but 100%. And it gets worse. There's a current talk that they may not be able to get the rights for that access over the freeway, at least for perhaps two years. In fact, some say five years. And in fact, some say they may not be able to get those rights at all. And they may just go ahead with 100% of the traffic being routed right through C. Now, you'd think that some people in City Hall would be a little bit embarrassed by this uh, revelation, but uh, we're unaware here at Radio Parallax of any repercussions so far. In fact, no one seems to be even complaining about this very loudly. So, we figure it's up to us. There, there in fact, is a lawsuit going forward over the environmental impact of this project uh, and how it's been, I presume, vastly underestimated. But... And is this correspondent's opinion, having looked around, seeing the political realities here, that that lawsuit is going to go nowhere? Mr. Angelides and Mr. Sokopoulos are going to get what they want, and frankly, it doesn't really matter that they had to lie to get it. Now, to use the word lie is pretty strong language. It implies that they knew all along that um, they were going to have to use this entrance at C Street uh, for all of the traffic. And I got to say, I can't say with absolute certainty that you know that's the case, but I'm going to stick with the language I'm using. Now, I could be wrong about all of this, but I just think that they must have known early on that there were some problems with Caltrans, and they might not be given carte blanche to route all the traffic of their development over the bridge they operate on I-80. Yeah, it's my suspicion this is how City Hall politics works everywhere. I'd like to think that, you know, maybe it doesn't, but boy, I don't find a whole lot to be optimistic about having seen how things have gone down. And actually, we can illustrate an example of this that takes uh, takes some of the attention off those rascals in Sacramento City Hall and, you know, Mr. Angelides and Sokopoulos, and look down to see the fact that they built an office tower down in San Francisco that appears to be sinking. <laughs> Apparently... Um, city building officials somehow allowed the developer of the Millennium Tower to avoid anchoring his condominium into bedrock. City Hall insiders are now raising questions about San Francisco Supervisor Aaron Peskin's role in approving the deal. Peskin joined a majority of the Board of Supervisors back in September of 2003 during his first tour on the board and approved the environmental impact report for the 58-story office tower. He's now preparing to hold hearings on why this happened. And, no, we're, we're, not, we're a little unclear on some of the details of that. You know, why did it happen? Because you voted for it. 
Hello? Yeah, this story is a bit of a mystery. As you may or may not know, a lot of the city of San Francisco is built on rubble that they dumped into the low-lying areas and later built upon it. This is, this is not a good place to be in an earthquake. In recent decades, the buildings in San Francisco, because as you're probably aware, San Francisco is in an earthquake zone, um, have had to be built onto the bedrock. How this office tower got approved, despite the fact that it wasn't going to do that, is a mystery. The office tower has already sunk something like six inches and uh, keeps going. You know, it was noted in the article in the Chronicle that Peskin was also on hand nine months later when the board voted unanimously to improve the environmental documents for the neighboring Transbay Transit Center, the bus and rail hub whose construction, the Millennium Developer, has alleged contributed to the high rises sinking. Chronicle notes that although the environmental report for the Millennium didn't spell out how the project should be built, it did warn that it would be, quote, in an area of liquefaction potential, unquote. In fact, the report said the building that used to occupy that spot, the 300 block of Mission Street, had to be demolished because of the damage it sustained in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. Meanwhile, Supervisor Peskin has said, let's be clear, I have consistently supported the high-rise residential development where it's appropriate in San Francisco, and I'm in no way saying we shouldn't have a 400-unit housing project downtown. But when you are approving the environmental report, you are not approving the foundation structure. <laughs> you're not? So the fact that you're building it on fill and not lo locking it to the bedrock is somehow um, glossed over in the environmental impact report? This is all a mystery to us. But the actual numbers are pretty hair-raising. This, this tower has sunk an additional 8 inches to a 16-inch total. And a geochemical engineering firm hired by the homeowners warned in May that it's still dropping. Now, Mr. Merlin does have a suggestion that part of the problem here. You just keep renumbering the floors as they continue to sink down into the bay fill. That's one option. Anyway, politics is it's a depressing topic, but it's important, so we keep talking about this sort of stuff. Now, we understand that a lot of the history of San Francisco, anyway, has been chronicled in David Talbot's book, The Season of the Witch. Unfortunately, yours truly has not yet read it, but I believe that once I do, we may be able to uh, bring David on the program to talk about it. He's been very accommodating in the past about speaking with us. As you may or may not know, David Talbot is the founder of Salon.com. Interestingly, when he was praising Rose Pack, whom he said he liked very much, he did note that her advocacy for Chinatown, above all else, sometimes was a little bit counterproductive. Case in point, although she helped put Art Agnos into the mayor's chair in San Francisco, she later turned against him when he wanted to tear down the Embarcadero Freeway. The Chinese community thought this would have a terrible effect on their businesses, but Luckily for all of us, the Embarcadero Freeway, which was an eyesore of the highest order, was torn down in the wake of the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. It did provide easy access for car drivers to get in and out of Chinatown, but once it was torn down, the area of the Embarcadero that has replaced it has not been an impediment to auto traffic and has in fact opened the city up. Well, if you've been down there, you realize how beautiful it is on the shorefront facing Yerba Buena Island. It was, it was um, quite a dark and dreary place 30 years ago, and this was, this was the right thing, even though, like, like David said, Rose Pack um, didn't like it, 
and uh, did her best to destroy the career of Art Agnos as a consequence. That's politics. In the 10 minutes or so we have remaining in this program, we need to get off the topic of politics and on to the subject of science, which is generally a much more rosy area for us. So let's go back to New Scientist magazine and see what they're talking about, which is, first and foremost, uh, or at least first anyway, uh, the fact that a new study conducted by the University of Tokyo in Japan has noted a link between the size of earthquakes and the phases of the moon. You and I have always heard in the past that there is no such link, but another look at it of late uh, indicates that, well, maybe there is. The University of Tokyo team found that the 12 largest recorded quakes, those with a magnitude of 8.2 or more, of those 12, nine occurred on days near near or full moons. Smaller quakes showed no tendency to cluster at these times. 12 is a small number. They have to basically expand this study. But it is interesting and certainly plausible. People have always thought for years that it, well, if the Earth's crust is being pulled up as it is uh, during these times of the lunar-solar phases, that, you know, wouldn't that be the time for the Earth to slip? Well, maybe so. We do want to remind you, by the way, that a supermoon is coming up in November. The moon is going to be extremely close to the Earth. Uh, uh, the full moon will be, I think, within hours of the closest the, that the moon can get uh, around to the Earth to the Earth in its orbit. This added stress is going to produce some pretty high and low tides. When this sort of thing happens, the moon is a lot brighter than it is at its minimum. Uh, the, the full moon in November is going to be 30% brighter than a minimalist full moon, which should make it um, pretty cool to be out and about in the moonlight. And uh, let's, go, let's go out into deep space, uh, away from our local solar system, in this case 20 million light years away. And um, note that some scientists think we have now finally seen the birth of a black hole. New scientist notes that according to theory, when massive stars run out of fuel, they die in huge explosions, shooting out high-speed jets of matter and radiation. What's left behind then collapses into the black hole, which is so dense and has such strong gravity that not even light can escape. That's always been the theory. Well, now they think they may have some evidence that that's what we have seen. This is based on observations of a red supergiant star, the catchy name N6946-BH1, 20 million light years away. Now, we'd remind you that 20 million light years away puts it in a different galaxy. One of the local ones, but still... 20 million light years away. The Andromeda galaxy is about one-tenth of that. At any rate, this red supergiant must be a supergiant indeed. It was first observed back in 2004, and it was thought to be about 25 times the mass of our sun. Researchers Chris Kochenek at Ohio State University aimed the Hubble Space Telescope at this star and found that for some months in 2009, it briefly flared a million times brighter than our sun, then faded away. Hubble telescope images now indicate that it has disappeared in the visible wavelengths. The article notes that these observations mesh with what theory predicts should happen when a star that size crumples into a black hole. First, the star spews out so many neutrinos that it loses mass. The star then lacks enough gravity to hold on to the cloud of hydrogen ions loosely bound around it. As this cloud floats away, it cools 
allowing the detached electrons to reattach to the hydrogen. This causes a roughly year-long bright flare. When it fades, only the black hole remains, and that's what observations indicate happened with this red supergiant. I believe they're going to have to spend a little more time and energy to confirm these observations, but uh, if they do, it looks like we've, you know, finally seen a black hole being born. And the hard-working Hubble Space Telescope has been called upon to look at some stellar explosions taking place much closer to Earth. In this case, just 7,500 light years away. Our Milky Way galaxy is about 100,000 light years across, so this is about 1 14th of the diameter of our galaxy, which makes it relatively local. At any rate, we're referring to a star in this case called Eta Carina. It erupted like a supernova back in 1843, yet managed to survive. A trail of gas filaments now suggests it may have had two prior outbursts hundreds of years earlier. Now you've probably seen pictures of this explosion, though you may not have known what it was, because the Hubble telescope has produced some startling images of the gas cloud around Eta Carina. Uh, this star is actually a binary. It's actually two stars spinning tightly around one another. The smaller one is between 30 and 50 times the mass of our sun. The bigger one is between 100 and 150 times our star's mass. This behemoth system is tearing itself apart, blasting photons outward with so much pressure they carry away the star's outer layers. Now, using the Hubble Space Telescope, they've taken a very close look at these filaments protruding and have been able to observe over a several year interval changes in them, which they've been able to calculate backwards to indicate that some of these gas blobs must have erupted earlier than 1843. They now think that this star system had a major eruption about 1250 and a slightly less dramatic one about the year 1550. We find it pretty amazing that, that such observations can be made using the Hubble Space Telescope and frankly we can't wait until the James Webb Space Telescope gets put up in orbit uh, in the not too distant future because it promises to be an order of magnitude better than the Hubble, which is pretty remarkable. And that about does it for today's program, which was produced from the front of a moving automobile by <laughs> Edward McMillan. He was not, we would emphasize, driving at the same time. Aww. All right, you've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We will see you next week at the same time, hopefully with a scintillating interview with that deep political reporter, Mr. Russ Baker. We'll see you then.